Welcome to Literary Speaking with Crystal Lee Quibell. Literary Speaking is the author's guide to writing and publishing, sharing tips and tricks for aspiring authors. Crystal Lee's expert guests will bring you the latest information on how to write and publish your book into being. Are you ready to tell your story? Here's your host. Thank you for listening to Literary Speaking, the Writer's Guide to Publishing podcast. Welcome to Season 4. We just wanted to point out a few things to you that you may not know were now available on iHeartRadio and Spotify. Please take a moment to leave us a review on whichever channel you're listening to Literary Speaking and let us know what you think of the show. Thank you so much for listening for four years and supporting the podcast. You can now become a member of our special Patreon group for as little as a dollar a month, which helps to cover the costs of our recording, editing, and hosting software. We look forward to hearing from you, so please connect with us on Instagram at Literary Speaking. Enjoy the show. Today, my guest is Michelle Philgate. She's a contributing editor at Literary Hub and the editor of the critically acclaimed anthology, What My Mother and I Don't Talk About. She's currently an MFA student at NYU, a recipient of the Stein Fellowship. Her works appeared in publications such as Long Reads, The Washington Post, The LA Times, The Rumpus, Salon, Tin House, Oprah Magazine, and many more. She teaches creative writing at NYU, the Sackett Street Writers Workshop, Catapult, and Stanford Continuing Studies. She's the founder of the popular Red Ink series. Please welcome Michelle to the show. So your essay, What My Mother and I Don't Talk About, debuted on Long Raids to rave reviews. When did you know it was the right time to publish it? Oh, boy. Um, I don't know that there was any that I knew that there was the right time to publish it. I think I lucked out with having it published at the right time because um, when Sari bought and accepted it for Long Reads, it was originally supposed to come out around Thanksgiving time. I believe I submitted it in September and she was going to publish it in November. But then when the um, Weinstein story broke and the Me Too movement took off, it seemed like a, a really ideal time to publish that essay. So they moved it up. And I feel like that was the perfect timing for this piece to be out in the world because this topic was already on people's minds. Um, and uh, that uh, I think that helped contribute to the essay going viral, being shared by a bunch of writers I love. Um, and so I, I, but I also feel like it's, it's really difficult to know what, when the good perfect time is to publish an essay like mm -hmm. this, anything that has trauma at the center of it, it's always going to feel like the wrong time to put it out there in the world. Um, and sometimes you just have to let these things go and release them into the world and not worry about what the feedback will be because it's sort of out of your control after you write it. And did you, how did you find like when you first started, when it first started going viral, what, what's that experience really like for, for somebody when you're publishing this really big piece that's very personal you know, and includes family members and discussion about family? Ah, oh, it was really hard. Um, I talk in the introduction of my book about how the day that it came out, I was visiting a friend in Sausalito and there was a bad wildfire. That, um, and th I went to check my computer to open my computer at dawn. I knew that, you know, the essay would already be up on long reads and I was so um, preoccupied by the fear of putting it out there and seeing it finally on on their website that I didn't even 
noticed for a few minutes that there were ashes raining down on my keyboard and covering it. And it felt kind of like the perfect metaphor for my life. So, um, oh, wow. Yeah. And I just, I don't know. It was, I, I was really lucky in that my, my family has, um, not my mother, but my family has been very supportive, uh, about this piece being out there and being published and me telling my story. So I do feel very lucky in that way. And in fact, this book is dedicated to both of my grandmothers because they are the two mm-hmm. strongest women I know. So, um, I am really, really lucky to have my grandmothers in my life. They're, they're incredible human beings. So it's so great to have that support too, because I think, especially when we're writing about trauma and like the mother wound, it can be so terrifying to put the work out there. And then it means so much when we have the people that love us to support it, even if some of the people included in the essay don't, you know, it, it just sort of helps you kind of get through that. And, um, so yeah, that's really good to know. How did you end up, how did you end up getting your literary agent for the anthology? So I had an agent before the anthology idea came about. In fact, I had an agent for several years at that point. Um, Mel Flashman is my agent. She's wonderful. And um, she uh, came into the picture when I had a a different idea for a book, uh, a book that didn't end up panning out. But um, that was when she uh, wanted to represent me. And I'm really glad that she stuck with me for the long haul. I think that... um, you know, I, I'm, I'm bummed that my first idea didn't work, but, uh, this one seemed kind of perfect and the pieces fell together very quick or came together very quickly. So when I approached Mel about the idea for this book, she was like, yeah, this is great. Let's go out with this. So, um, I kind of turned it around very quickly. I think that we sold the book in February, if I remember the timeline correctly. And the essay had come out in October of 2017. And then we sold the book in February of 2018. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And how, so once you did that, you know, I'm always sort of curious, how do you approach contributors or do you put out a call for submissions? Like how does that whole process work when putting together an anthology? So I know a lot, a lot of anthology editors who have put out calls for submissions I did not want to do that for this particular book. I felt like I would get inundated with submissions and have to sort through a lot of them. And it, it to me, there were already so many writers I had in mind for this book that I felt like with my contacts in the book world, having, having worked in the industry for a very long time as an events coordinator at different bookstores and also having done a ton of author interviews and book reviews and being on the board board of the National Book Critics Circle um, from, for several years, I, I just felt like I had an, enough writers in mind that I didn't need to put out an official call. So I reached out to um, some writers I really admire to see if they would be willing to commit and write something about this topic. And that, that came together very nicely. So, you know, I had I had people like Leslie Jameson and Alexander Chi on the proposal as committed to writing an essay. And that definitely helped sell the book. And did you put the the proposal together? Or did you work side by side with your agent to put it together to put so that it was ready when you wanted to pitch it to editors? Um, yeah, I mean, I mostly like the proposal 
for an anthology this it wasn't like a typical proposal for mm -hmm. a, a book where you're writing the whole thing yourself I mean the most important thing that I had to do was show like the the essay that went viral and um a list of contributors and some of the essays that they wanted to write and uh and so it was mostly you know I I did the proposal and then Mel gave me some feedback on what to add and what to edit and and then we went out with it. So once once the essay was published, a bit of time had passed and you're putting together the proposal, what sort of, what did you feel like it opened up for you? Like, how did it feel once you finally got it out there? Because you actually wrote this essay quite some time ago and worked on it for several years, right? Yeah, I actually, I started writing the essay when I was an undergraduate and it took me well over a decade to write the essay. So um, I never really envisioned it as being part of a book, but it felt it felt like a, a really powerful thing to um, to break silences collectively with a bunch of people. The The subtitle of the book is 15 Writers Break the Silence. Um, and it just seemed like the right book of this moment, even though it's a book that I think will outlast this moment as well. But it mm -hmm. felt like a book that we needed right now of people writing about their complicated or complex relationships with their mothers. Um, it was really important to me to have a, a book that included diverse stories, not just diverse writers, but diverse relationships. So it felt it, it felt like this was an important project to work on. And mm -hmm. um, I felt really honored to be able to reach out to some of my favorite writers and get a chance to to, to edit them. And so when, when you're putting together an anthology and you've got, you're working with so many different writers and personalities, how do you manage being able to get everything done on time and hitting your, your deadlines? <laughs> like, was it difficult to manage all of that? Absolutely. Yes. In fact, I mean, there's a delicate balance between you don't want to like put too much pressure on a writer to to meet the deadline, but you also don't want to let too much time pass because some of the deadlines were, especially as we get down to like when the final manuscript was due, you know, aren't, aren't that flexible. So because we had this deadline, if we wanted the book to come out around Mother's Day of this year, it was, it, there were certain deadlines that we absolutely had to meet. So a lot of being an anthology editor is wrangling, is sending reminders, is, is doing that. Um, and uh, it was interesting being on the other side of the table because I've certainly, as a writer, you know, been on the side where an editor is like, where is your work? <laughs> um, <laughs> even though I really try to be very strict with deadlines that, you know, writers, the best of intentions, um, you don't always meet them just because like all everyone is juggling multiple projects when they're a writer. So um, so that was, that was a challenge. And also a challenge was, um, just being able to make sure that all of the essays were different enough and didn't overlap. So, you know, and unfortunately, and this is the case, I'm sure in every anthology, there were some pieces that had to be cut because they didn't work coming together with all of the essays in the book. That that's one of the challenges also of, of being an editor of an anthology is, 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 you know, having to cut certain pieces. Mm -hmm. And you also, you run this really cool red ink series. It's yeah. super popular. How did that come to fruition? So I had, I, I spent years as an events coordinator at different indie bookstores. And one of the things I really enjoyed about that job was getting to curate 
you know, the events and, and pair together different voices and come up with different topics for events. And I really love doing that. And that was one of the things I missed the most when I left my book selling job. So I decided that I wanted to start a series that was focused on conversations only because there are already so many great reading series in New York City, like Franklin Park reading series, Panina Roth does, and that's one of my favorites. In this case, I when Book Court was still open, it's it's no longer around, unfortunately, but that was my local indie bookstore, and I approached them about doing this, and that was great. So my friend had a book coming out, Catherine Teller, um, called The Penny Poet of Portsmouth. And it was all about this older poet that she be basically helped take care of as he grew older in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and how he was not like obsessed with fame at all. In fact, he would sell his his poem, like books of his poems for for pennies on the street. And she wanted I just loved that book and how it looked at the life of being an artist and what that means and what you need as an artist and so the for very first red ink was centered around her book the topic was finding solitude in a noisy world and it also included Angela Flournoy and Leslie Jameson and so from there it just took off and I do it four times a year and now it, it moved to Powerhouse for a while, and now it's at Books Are Magic, which is my local indie store. We just had the first one there recently on the topic of authenticity. I really love doing it because I love pairing emerging writers with, you know, well-known, well-established writers, with, and I love pairing writers of different genres together to come together and have conversation that is based around a topic that pertains to women writers. Uh, and I felt like there was need for a space for that. And I know there's like so many of our listeners, they write in and they mention, you know, wanting to give up and feeling like they'll never get the book deal or it's too late to enter a writing program or apply for an MFA. What has helped you really persevere when things were difficult, when it felt impossible and you're just constantly putting out content and writing essays and publishing and just did you ever sort of experience that how did you kind of navigate it all the time yeah I think that's one of the biggest challenges of being a writer is is how do you keep going when you've been reject you know when you faced rejection or felt like things aren't exactly going well or you know any kind of no, there are a number of challenges that come up when you're a writer I think what keeps me going is the desire to keep writing like that. I'm, Joanne Beard is one of my like goddesses. She's one of the reasons <laughs> I started writing essays to begin with. I can't recommend The Boys of My Youth enough. I feel like it's a, a perfect essay collection. And I, I was able to study with her at the Tin House Summer Workshop several years ago. And one of the things she said with to me that always will stick with me is that you cannot control the business side of publishing of, of being a writer like that part is mostly out of your control and will never make you truly happy and the only thing that will truly make you happy is the craft is 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 focusing on your writing and, and you can control like the output of that you can control trying to get better at that I see myself as a lifelong learner and I feel like whenever the business side of things is not going well I can really just focus on well how can the writing itself make me happy and 
how can I produce more? How can I write stuff that I want to write? How can I push back past my fears of the blank page and, and force myself to write? And sometimes that means having a writing buddy. I often like to meet up for writing dates like one would have a gym buddy um, because it forces me to sit in a chair and, and try to get words on the page. Um, I just really find that when I'm not writing, uh, I'm pretty miserable if it, if it's, if there's too long of a stretch that goes between, um, you know, producing something new. So I feel like it's really important to always have something you're working on. Even now I'm just, I'm, I'm at the tail end of my book tour. It's been pretty intense for almost a month of, um, a lot of like one night in each city. And that's kind mm -hmm. of a dream come true, but it's also, when you're in the promotion side, again, of like a book, that's, that's the business side of things, right? And that's an, a necessary thing to do when you're a writer. And it's great if you have, you know, it's, it's like a dream come true to be on the road and touring your book. But at the same time, it also is very challenging to have that sacred time to just daydream and, you know, work on your writing in a very concentrated way. So right now, what I'm really craving is, is that space, that headspace and that time to just focus purely on my writing again and not on promoting. And I'm very excited to do that this summer because right now I'm in grad school at NYU and the semester just ended. My, my first year of grad school just ended and I'm just very excited to, to have time for myself this summer for my creativity, for working on my writing and seeing what emerges from that. What was sort of your experience when you first began to publish your essays? Because I know a lot of people will put out, you know, their essays and their work and they don't hear back because often you don't even get a rejection. It's just they either contact you or they don't. So for you, how, how long did it take before you got your first essays published and, and out there? Yeah, well, I'll just add to that, that even when you are a published writer, even after you get stuff published, you're still going to be facing that of not hearing back from certain editors, even maybe editors that you've worked with, you know, so that just is the nature of the game. And it's it's frustrating. But but I think the sooner that a writer can accept that, you know, there there will always be rejections, um, the the sooner it becomes a little bit easier. My first essay was published at the Rumpus, and I feel really extremely fortunate. It was when Roxanne Gay was the essays editor there. Mm -hmm. And so that was really amazing to have it be published by a website that I love so much and where there's a dedicated group of readers. And I just felt like it was such a wonderful experience. So that, but, but, you know, that wasn't like the first time I had submitted an essay before I had certainly submitted a bunch of essays before that that weren't accepted in places and that's part of the process you know sometimes it's just a matter of finding the right editor i mean mm -hmm. for this essay that ended up leading to my book you know i think i think i really lucked out and that the timing was that people were taking a chance on publishing more of these kinds of me too stories but before the me too movement took off i feel like a lot of publications were like nervous about publishing these kinds of pieces so Sometimes it's about waiting for the right timing and, and that, that could, you know, definitely influence things. But I mean, even today I have my first book out, but I'm certainly going to have pieces rejected, uh, this coming year as well. That's just part of the process of being a writer. So 
the sooner that you can get used to like ripping the band-aid off and submitting stuff and getting your first rejections, the sooner that you are going to have more success as a writer. I have plenty of former students who like have landed a major publication on their first try, like not having anything published before. So it's not like you have to have already had a bunch of clips to submit something to the Atlantic or the New York Times, for instance. But you know, some of the people I know who are the most prolific at getting published are also the people who, you know, tally up, who end up getting a, t a ton of rejections as well, which you don't hear about. It's just that they're submitting mm -hmm. so much that they are getting published. <laughs> <laughs> and is that sort of how your process works? Like, do you just write what you feel inspired to write? And then once you have a couple essays, then you start you know, sending pitches out and just keep pitching to different venues and yeah, sometimes some sometimes that is the case. Sometimes I've I've definitely sold pieces based on like social media posts where I've written about this not so much recently, but this has happened in the past where I've like kind of gone on a rant on Facebook and then an editor has said, Would would you like to write an essay about this? Mm -hmm. But that didn't happen in the beginning. That was after already having, you know, built up a portfolio. And and sometimes, you know, editors will put calls out for pitches on certain topics, so that might inspire something. It, there are all kinds of ways that I end up writing about something, but often it's stuff that I'm obsessed with somehow or can't stop thinking about. It's something that's on my mind that I feel like I need to work out on the page. And I, I, I'm, I don't know, like sometimes it's really hard to come up with essay ideas. So I also just keep like a, a a document where I try to write down ideas when I have them in case I feel stuck, you know. Mm -hmm. um, right now I'm writing a lot of fiction, which because I'm in grad school for fiction. So that's been really fun because I'm able to break away from my the the facts of my own life and and enter the imaginative realm more. And that and that has been really fun. And so for listeners that are wanting to pitch essays, what's your advice on getting your work submitted and accepted to publications like Long Reads and Vice and, you know, The Rumpus and, and those types of publications? Well, my number one piece of advice is to pay attention to what the publication says for their submissions. You know, for instance, on Long Reads, Sari has a whole um, page on that website where she has uh, really gone into detail on what she's looking for and the types of essays that they want. And for instance, they, she doesn't usually take pitches. She usually wants to see the finished essay. And she has a bunch of examples of great essays that she's published on long reads so that the writer can get an idea of the kinds of pieces they want to publish. I think it's really important to be familiar with the publication that you want to be published in and to know that like the tone might be the right kind of tone for that publication. You know, I see a lot of editors who talk about how frustrating it is when in, when a writer doesn't even read the submission guidelines. Mm. And and so I think that's the, the number one thing you need to pay attention to. But I also I think that if you're the more familiar you're, you are with the types of pieces that a publication publishes, then the easier it is to find a fit of what something or figure out what it is that you could write that might be the right kind of for them. So it's really important to do your research. That said, I would also 
you know, write a piece first. Some, sometimes you need to like not worry about what a publication wants and just write a piece and then do the research of like, okay, what kind of publication would this be a good piece for? Because sometimes it's hard to write with knowing that you have to ha do things a certain way. It can kind of like uh, paralyze you a little bit. So sometimes, especially like writing about something that might have like trauma in it or so anything that's painful to write about, I feel like you really need to write with blinders on in that case and pretend that no one is ever going to read it and mm -hmm. just get it on the page. And then like once you have a draft that you feel like is really solid, this might be after several drafts, um, then kind of look around and, and try to figure out which place it would be good to submit it to based on what they publish. I would also follow editors on social media because Sometimes editors put a call out for, you know, that they're looking for submissions and what kinds of pieces they're looking for. There's a great uh, group that you can sign up for monthly called Study Hall, where it's a group of freelancers. And one of the things that they share, it's like a paid subscription, but it's not that much money. And they, they often share like calls for submissions each week from editors. I find that very useful. Oh, that's a great tip. Yeah. So for when you're putting together an anthology, what's it like working with each of the contributors? Well, um, it's, it depends on, I, I, hmm, I don't even know how to answer that because it's an anthology, right? So it's, it's a bunch yeah. of different voices. Um, so some of the pieces come in really already extremely polished and don't need that many edits. And some of the pieces come in and need to go through several rounds of drafts. But it was a delight to work with each and every contributor in this book. Uh, it was, you know, I knew most of them already in some capacity, in some professional capacity. And I really enjoyed kind of working with each writer to help their piece really shine. And I also really enjoyed working with my editor, Karen Marcus at Simon & Schuster, because she it was very much a collaborative project where I would do a round of edits and then she would also give a round of edits. So I learned a lot from looking at how she edited the piece as well. And do you find that there's been a lot of people who reach out after reading the book to share their stories with you or with the other contributors as well? Yeah, absolutely. I've heard from strangers while I've been on book tour, people who have had all kinds of stories to share of their own. And I've also gotten emails including one of the really powerful ones that I, I received is from a mother who read the introduction and started crying because she's been estranged from her daughter for many years and felt mm. like there aren't that many books out there that deal with that subject. And mm -hmm. this is a book she really needed to read right now. So I getting, getting emails like that, hearing, hearing those kinds of responses makes this whole book worth it. And how do you set boundaries with caring for yourself? Because you're answering questions about the book subject matter, and it can it can be pretty intense sometimes. Some people share some very detailed, you know, trauma with you. How do you how do you set the boundary and care for yourself dealing with that? That's an excellent question. Uh, I I mean, it is very difficult to be asked all the time about my relationship with my mom, um, mm -hmm. and <laughs> I. You know, it, there are several things like I don't answer anything that makes me 
truly uncomfortable. And I can also always talk about the other essays in the book instead of focusing solely on my own because it is an anthology and I really love each and every single essay in this anthology. So if it's, if somebody is trying to ask me something that I consider too personal that, you know, I don't want to talk about, then I can talk about another fantastic essay in my book. I also can just speak in more general terms about how things are complicated um, with my mother and how I love her. And I hope that this book will lead to some healing with us. But I, I think it is important, really important to have boundaries. Uh, the thing is, uh, something that I feel like a lot of people don't realize is that when writers are writing about their own lives, they're kind of, they're usually writing all the details that they want to share about that in the piece that's already out there. It's like mm -hmm. very, it's very difficult to go further than that in some ways, especially when it's something that's very painful. It's like, these are the particular details you have chosen to share. So that needs to be honored and respected uh, and not poked and prodded, in my opinion, because it's a deliberate choice what the author chooses to share in their writing. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> how, how did the book tour go? Like, do you have any tips for other authors about to embark on their own promotional tours? It was wonderful and exhausting at the same time. I, I recommend not having, not setting high expectations for yourself on like, oh, I'm going to also, you know, write 500 words a day while I'm on book tour and I'm going to do this and do that. No, like everything goes out the window. You're basically in survival <laughs> mode when you're on book tour. <laughs> I had all these ambitious like plans of like, oh, I'm going to write and I'm going to go for a run and I'm going to do this and that. And, and it's like, you're lucky if you get five hours of sleep because you're often getting up early to catch, you know, an early flight. And you're you're lucky if you have time to, like, sit and enjoy a meal with a friend who lives in that city. You know, I, I do think it's really great, though, to try to connect with people, you know, in each city that you go to when you're on book tour, just because it's nice to have a friendly face. And I also, the main thing I recommend is just really connecting with the indie booksellers, even if you don't have a big turnout at a particular event. Mm -hmm. I'll never forget um, when I was a bookseller, I went to this conference called Winter Institute um, and Anne Patchett was one of the speakers that year. I, I love her. She's one of my favorite writers. And one of the things that she said is that when she first started out as a writer, she would go around the country to different bookstores and no one would show up at certain events. and she would start a conversation with the bookseller who worked in that store and they'd really hit it off and the bookseller would read her book and then hand sell her book. And that's mm -hmm. how she started building a name for herself. So you never know if that one person in the audience might be someone who, who um, either is a bookseller and will sell your book or like might have a book club where they introduce your book to a bunch of people. You just never know the domino effect of, of being nice to one single person person. So keep that in mind and don't despair if there are some low turnout events because everything is an opportunity for having a discussion about your book that you've worked so hard on. So so just embrace it and embrace the ups and downs of book tour. I think that's great advice because I know I really like going to readings when there's a low turnout because it gives me more of an opportunity to talk with the author one-on-one, -on -one. like, I don't feel like I'm manipulating their time if there's only a handful of us there. And yeah, you know, 
It's more intimate. Yeah. (laughs) It's really nice. Yeah. Yeah. And when I go, like I, I don't mention that I do interviewing or reviewing until after, um, because I really gauge the author's attitude. So I think that's important to note too, because if somebody is kind of bitter that there's not a big turnout and they're acting a little icky, I just leave. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, I came all this way to hear you read and you're being a bit of a diva. So nope. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's my biggest piece of advice. Don't be a diva authors. Like that's not cool. Like anyone, anyone paying attention to your book is something that you should be so appreciative Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. there are so many books published in a single year. Just having a single person pay attention to it is incredible, right? So then the ripple effect of what that can be, if you're kind and if you're, you know, I've like, I've certainly, as this also goes for social media too, right? I feel like I have bought so many authors' books because I like their personality on social media. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. It's true because I think I always like connecting, you know, on Facebook and Instagram and somebody that's posting and they're just being helpful and community builders. I love to support people that support building the community of writers rather than being competitive and and trying to be the only one or the best one. Because I think community is what saves you when you're going through those tough times of, of rejection and wanting to give up you know, fellow writers are the people that are like, keep going. It's going to happen. Just believe. (laughs) Absolutely. And Lord knows, I mean, like my, my Facebook, I I feel like Facebook is the one that like has been the most helpful for me of all the social media platforms. And I feel like that has really saved me like that community on there in in Mm -hmm. the past several years when I've like felt really, you know, kind of depressed about, about how my writing career was going for whatever reason, like the community on there has what's like kept me buoyed and, and, and like kept me going. So (laughs) I think that's so important. Mm -hmm. If you could go back in time to before you published the S the essay that the book is based on and before the book, when it was in the early stages of just coming together, what Mm -hmm. sort of advice would you give her? Oh, man. Well, I would go back in time to my college age self, to my undergrad self and and give myself the advice that um, to to not be so impatient. I, I like this is still so embarrassing to me, but I used to have this feeling when I was a teenager that if I didn't have a book out by the time I was 25, I was a failure, which is like, mm-hmm. like I think that's really common, though. It is. I think it's really common though. A lot of people struggle and think it's too late and it's many writers don't even start till 40, 50, 60 even. Exactly. Like Toni Morrison, Paul Harding, who wrote Tinkers that won the Pulitzer Prize. I could go on and on Mm. and on of how many writers were published at 40 or older. And, but when I was a, when I was a teenager, I just felt like the standard was I need to have something out in my early twenties. Right. Like I think our society, like our, our culture used to place so much emphasis on like the young wonderkind, like smart, you know, smart, brilliant young writer. And that's bullshit. So I would tell my younger self that, you know, I'm, it's okay to take a while. It's okay to live a little, to fail, to, to try and fail again. And it's, it's okay because all of these things are adding up to what you need to know in order to kind of find your voice as a writer. And so 
I would try to be, be gentle to my younger self because I feel like my younger self was really, really hard on herself about, about what she needed to accomplish and set ridiculous time limits on that. What's the best writing advice you've ever received that you feel is so important for new writers to hear? Oh, there's so many gathered over the years, but I think one of the things that has really stuck with that I teach my students is to write from a place of shame or vulnerability. Um, when, you know, to, to not shy away from those stories. It's not that you always have to write from that place, but that's often where a lot of the stories that we are trying to tell that live inside of us dwell is, is with shame. Um, right. There are so many things that we're, or fear, right. There are so many mm -hmm. things that we are avoiding talking about for whatever reason. And often what we're avoiding talking about is exactly where an important story might be centered. So I think it's really, it's really important to trick yourself into thinking that no one will ever read what you're writing so that you can get those words on the page and, and try to get those stories out. I'm not saying that everyone needs to tell these stories. For some people, it's incredibly difficult to, to talk about some of their most personal things. But I do think that whatever you're avoiding, there's a reason for that. And you should look into that as a writer of like, what is it that I'm avoiding? And why is it that I'm avoiding this? And really examine that. Because there might be a really important story there that you need to tell. I like that because I've, I've, been lucky enough to take a class with you at Catapult. And that was one of our first assignments. And I feel like one of the best essays I ever wrote was in that class. And there were so many great essays from all of the students. And you have a great teaching style and ability to bring out the best in each writer. Do oh. you... Oh, I'm so glad. <laughs> I just feel so lucky that that we got to work together. And really, we just met by chance through Facebook. Like, I, I think know. it was, you were a mutual friend of Susan Shapiro's. And so I was like, oh, I kind of like this girl. This is interesting. And then I think you posted about the Slice Literary Conference. And I went there and you were so nice and so welcoming because I knew absolutely nobody. And, um, and Julie was, uh, Julia was there. Um, that wrote Gypsy Moth Summer and Cutting yes. Teeth. And she was lovely too. So I just always feel like you were one of the very first people to sort of welcome me into the literary community. So I always feel so grateful for that. Oh, <laughs> well, I loved having you in my class. It was really great to work with you. And do you, you're still offering classes. Where all do you teach now? Yeah. So I, um, right now, mostly catapult where you studied with me, the online class I teach is building your writing career on the internet. And I teach for Sackett Street creative nonfiction, but I also teach a lot of in-person Sackett classes here in New York City. And this past year, for the first time, I taught for Stanford's Continuing Studies online program, which was a delight. It was really wonderful to teach for them as well. I taught in an essay writing class for them. So as of this fall, I'm going to be teaching at NYU as well as part of my MFA program. I'm going to, be, I'm going to teach intro to creative writing, fiction, and poetry at NYU for undergrads in the fall. Oh, that's so exciting. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. And do you do private editing as well, like working one-on-one -on -one with students? 
I do. Yeah, I'm available for that. I wasn't doing it for a while just because being in grad school and editing and promoting mm-hmm. a book is a lot. But now that the summer yes. is here, I definitely have time for new clients. So yes, I do. And people can just reach out to you via your website, right? Exactly. Yeah. My email, my contact okay. info is on there. Yep. <laughs> well, I'm I'm so grateful that you were available to do the interview and talk about what my mother and I don't talk about. And so just thank you so much for being here today and just giving so much information and so many tips to our listeners. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This has been wonderful, Crystal. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here today, Michelle. And thank you for listening. If you're looking for Michelle online, you can find her at www.michellefilgate.com. You can also purchase her book, What My Mother and I Don't Talk About, where all fine books are sold, and leave a review on Goodreads and Amazon. It's a small way to say thank you to the authors for giving their time and energy to the podcast and for all of us to learn from them. Until next time, hand to heart, pen to paper right on. Thank you for listening to Literary Speaking with your host, Crystal Lee Quibell. To start discovering how you can begin telling your story, go to crystalleequibell.com. That's crystalleequibell, Q-U-I-B-E-L-L.com. And sign up for Crystal Lee's newsletter. Join us again next week for more advice from your favorite authors and publishing professionals.